the wise man bowed his head solemnly and spoke. There is actually zero difference between good and bad things, you imbecile, you fucking moron. Just embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 102 of Embrace the Void, where we're still at it, though nobody really knows what it is. This is part two of my debate with Bo Weingard, so if you haven't heard part one yet, listen back first. Uh, all right, miles to go before we sleep. Okay, but okay, yes, women are less physically aggressive. That's a fact. Now, the question is, does that matter? And if somebody made that claim to me, I would say that's preposterous. If I heard a conservative say women shouldn't be CEOs because they're less physically aggressive by nature or something, I would think that that was one of the more absurd things I'd heard. But I mean, in the James Damore memo, he argues that women do less well in in certain certain jobs because they're less aggressive. Okay, but... uh, but the Demore memo, I think, was a very judiciously worded document. Oh, I don't disagree, but he makes the exact claim you're saying is absurd. That, no, because most of the most of what he talks about is that women have a preference for working with other people, and that they're higher in neuroticism, and that and they're less the, competitive and aggressive. Yes, that they're le- there's less competitive. But his argument was about. He wasn't saying we shouldn't let them in. There, there's an okay, but you agree that it's important to separate two claims. One okay, absolutely. Claim, I'm just I'm just saying that like it seems to um, me sometimes y'all are willing to p- pull on population differences to explain things, and other times you act like pulling on population differences to explain things like this is absurd. But like lots of people buy what you're selling and then carry it over into a lot of these other spheres, and it's not clear to me that you're you're conveying to them well enough that there's a substantial difference here. I'm not sure. I'm not even understanding the difference in this particular example. Here's the difference. There's a huge difference between saying, look, why is there a disparity in the world? So why are there why do more male firefighters die than female firefighters, for example, per capita? Okay, we could explain that. If I then said, if I said something else, if I said we shouldn't have women firefighters because of X. That's a totally different statement. Sure. That's a, okay. So that's what I'm saying. It's like Demore wasn't saying we shouldn't allow women in because X, Y, or Z. He was saying we, the, the, the likely reason there's a disparity in the field is because of this. Now, if yours, okay. And and, and also, I just want to say, but he does follow up with the policy conclusions that we shouldn't be doing a variety of things to try to change this. uh, 
because those aren't going to be effective because of the Correct. differences in, in individuals' nature. Correct. He rejects the malleability stuff. Yes, I agree with that, and I I happen I tend to agree with him, but I think it's important to be clear Wait, about. Wait, you tend to agree that that it is unchangeable, and we shouldn't try to change it. It it's not un. I mean, it depends on what we mean by unchangeable, right? So. Maybe let's get back to that in a second because I actually I, I like this. I like this point. So I think like the question we're, we're debating is, is society sexist? Right. Because what you're saying is I'm being excessively charitable in some sense, I believe is what you're saying to the animosity of white people who are, you know, they're concerned that they're becoming the minority. And I'm not as understanding of the legitimate anger and fear on the left. And one example you gave was sexism and what i'm i'm suggesting is this we need to have an empirical discussion about is society actually sexist because if it's not mm-hmm. if it, if it's not sexist and racist i think that it's it's not particularly healthful right. it's not serious to constantly criticize society for being sexist and racist i now, agree if we, okay so if we focus on sexist, I've tried to do this before, and I've broken it into four categories that we could look at to determine how sexist society is. We could look at outcomes, mm-hmm. we can look at norms, we can look at explicit laws, and we can look at attitudes towards the sexes. Great. Okay. Which one you want to start okay. with? Let's look at if we look at attitudes. Okay. It, the the evidence is pretty clear that attitudes favor women. Most people I like women. Okay, what literature do you have to support your claim? Well, I mean, it depends on what kind of attitude we're talking about, right? Women are viewed as being positive in some ways and and mm-hmm. lesser in other ways, right? There's not there's not a universal positive negative spectrum with regard well, no, to those groups. There's, there's, right, there's a lot of complexity to sure. right, and this is something that you and I've got talked about on Twitter before, where like. You can have a society that puts women up on the highest of pedestals and is still misogynistic. Okay. Yeah, right? see, I disagree. With, I think that claim is just hard to hard to maintain. I don't think. That, I mean, I think history's full of societies that put women up on pedestals and oppress the hell out of them. Yes, but surely that would show in the patronizing attitudes of the individuals, right? No, I mean, like take Islam for example, right? Women right. are viewed as sacred. Women are treated, you know, viewed as very important things, and that's yeah. why they are covered up by some people. Like, if you, you ask a man, it depends on which Islamic society we're talking about. Of course. Obviously, but, if, but I'm saying there are versions of that in Islam, sure. right? There are but versions of this ask, in Christianity, right? In almost every religion, you find some version of women are incredibly important for reproductive reasons, so we're going to treat right. them as sacred, and we're going to lock them up. Yeah. Okay, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, the lock them up part, I'm not sure about in Christianity, but I agree with all of oh, the God. other. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe, but here's the here's the thing: if you asked a male, "What do you think about women's capacity to reason?" It's not as if Paul would tell you women are equally as smart as men. You would see in their attitudes that they would be dismissive and patronizing toward women while maintaining that they're like these sacred vessels of the next generation. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying... Okay, I so when men in our society say that women... The reason that women are underrepresented in the STEM fields is that they are just mm-hmm. not as good at a variety of things that are essential for being in the STEM fields. Uh-huh. Is that misogynistic? No, I think that's I think that that's a like a, an invidious way of framing what he wrote there. 
I, I mean, it, I'm not saying Demore wrote that. I'm saying there are people oh, out yeah. there. There are, there are a substantial number of individuals, some sure. of them tenured professors at universities, who make this exact argument. I haven't encountered any of those. I from think Lawrence Tribe was probably one. Or not, um, uh, is it? Uh, who's the guy? Uh, Harvard Dean. Um, oh, Lawrence Summers. Lawrence Summers. Yeah, Lawrence Summers. Basically, I think that's a very unfair characterization of what he said. He carefully went through four specific hypotheses for the disparity, and one of them was the variance hypothesis. The variance hypothesis suggests that. There's more variance at the right end of the tail for men than for, well, on both sides, actually, on both sides for men than women. So what you see is like in the exact, in the extremes of talent, you might find more men there, but you also find more men in the extremes of like, for lack of a better term, stupidity. <laughs> right. But that's also, that could be a feature that's an artifact of women being largely prevented from excelling in a variety of fields for much of human history. Well, that's fair. We can have a conversation about that. But I think it's important to be charitable to what Summers said. Summers okay. didn't say men are just better than women at X. I agree with you, by the way, that uh, there he are. He is, though, effectively saying the best men are better than the best women at X. Like, yeah, he might yeah, think that that is factually true, but he, that is what he is saying. Oh, no, no, I agree with that. He is ultimately <laughs> saying that the best men are better at X than the best women. In the same way, I'm sure nobody would have a problem with my saying the best male basketball players are better than the best female basketball players. Right. I mean, that's just a fact about the world. We I don't think it makes a lot of sense to maintain that. My but, position but I think is there you're jumping from a, a, a much more biologically driven thing than one that is much more likely to be impacted by culture. And even there, like the issues of like the, the reason I keep wanting to, to sort of put sports aside is that the history of gendered sports is one of women being prevented from excelling because they were expected to be feminine in their behavior like okay but you agree that like men are just taller than women that's just a fact i agree that we have bred men to be taller over the course of human history but okay, there's nothing essential that would prevent you know like it, like here's what i'm saying if we as a culture stopped for example pr, you know mm -hmm. valuing shorter women and taller men I think the heights would change. I, it, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's hard to separate out the impact of the society on these phenotypes. Okay, so let's set that aside for a second and go to that. Just let me make my point on okay. the attitude. Then. I would agree. I agree with you that there are some misogynistic males in the world. I've known them. <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying there aren't any. There are... You can explicitly say uh, uh, most of the research, the most recent research suggests that people think women in, in many categories are better than men. They, they either think that men and women are equal or that women are better. In, in some I've, categories, certainly. Yeah, in some categories, competence, intelligence, warmth, caring, etc. I've found this in my own research. Other people have found it. It's a pretty common finding. People generally prefer and think women are nicer in many ways than men, etc. Now, I, you have you asked gamers about whether women are equally good at video games? I, I have no, yeah, I have nothing. I I, I know nothing about gamers. <laughs> you do, you, this is this is my this is a little bit of a genuine concern here. Is that you say there are some misogynists, but I think you get the you give the impression that there aren't as many as the left thinks. 
I don't think yeah. you've spent enough time hanging around the people I've like I've interacted with. And I think the part of the reason is you don't because of your particular position and perspectives and mm-hmm. things, you're not the mm-hmm. one suffering constant harassment from men. Right? There are well, a lot I'm, of women who, who will tell you a story about living in yeah, good. Sorry. Well, it's not as if I, I live in a world of men. I know lots of women. And here's what's interesting to me. The women who have an ideology that suggests that women are oppressed tell me all kinds of stories about oppression. The ones who don't, don't. That's so not a very good have, data point, though. I mean, well, I agree. It's not. That's why I'm saying what we have to do is look at the empirical evidence, right? We can't. And the empirical yeah, evidence seems to suggest there's a variety of points in which women are oppressed in a variety of ways in our society still. Such as? Uh, such as that uh, they are dissuaded from entering fields in certain situations, uh, such oh. that there are uh, a variety <laughs> of social expectations that play on them that do not play sure. on men that affect their outcomes. Um, you know, Sure. Let's start with the first one. They're dissuaded from joining some fields. It, that probably is true still. I'd have to look. I at know the for data. a fact it's true because I have specific okay. concrete stories of it happening. Okay, but but I don't care. Stories aren't very helpful on such an issue. You would agree because sure we all have stories, right? And we our stories tend to match our ideology. So I I have to look at the data. No, and I, I mean I'm, what I'm saying is I don't I don't have all of the numbers in front of me on this particular sure, sure. topic, but I'm I'm pretty confident that I can point mm-hmm. to a variety of metrics that show that you know women uh, are at greater risk for domestic violence, for example, right? And that oh, but, but that's not true. Men, I think that yeah, the, oh, the it act- absolutely is true. Well, it's just worse for women, obviously. That's in what fact, greater like- risk means. Oh, right. Yes. No, I agree with that. Absolutely. And, and, the, and outside of prison, they're at higher risk for being raped. Absolutely. There are things in the world that are unfair to women. You'll get no argument from me. They have to get pregnant if they so choose. And that would be awful. <laughs> I don't want to participate in that. I, yeah. I, I, I agree with you on that. But if you look at a variety of outcomes that we can quantify... Women do better than men in Western society, right? No. How about in terms you, of net wealth? No, men do better. Absolutely. How much better? I, I don't know. I don't have the I number. But it's like orders of magnitude better. And these are. This is my point: is that like, yes, there women do better on the metric of people think that women are nicer. Men well, do no, better no. on the metric of holding power. Yes, I agree with that. But I. So this is where we would. Okay, so. Women also do better on many metrics. They live longer. They report being equally or more happy than males. They're equally and or more educated in, in Western societies, etc. So if you if you put together like a sort of quality of life composite, people such as Geary have argued that's the best way to measure it because if we're utilitarians, that what is what we ought to carry care about. Uh-huh. In a variety of Western societies, women have better outcomes than men. Okay, I realize there's a problem here, and it's my fault. Uh, this is this is a badly. I think it's a bad way to frame the question: Is our society misogynistic? Is asking okay. who has better outcomes, men or women, in the sense that I think a society can be misogynistic and harm women, and also while being a patriarchy, harm men in a variety of well, ways. I agree with you. Right. So I I don't think you can really show it's not like a zero sum game where like if men are being harmed more than women, it doesn't mean that women aren't being harmed. No, I agree with that. I completely agree. I'm I'm saying that's 
one of the things that I would include. I would include outcomes, attitudes, norms, and laws. And if you look at outcomes, I think it's at least at best, you could say maybe the outcomes break even. I think they probably favor women in a variety of ways, but we can debate about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they are really harmful to women in some ways and harmful to men in sure. other ways. Sure, and that still makes that. it a misogynistic society as well as being harmful um, but, but, to men. Yeah, this, this is what perplexes me about that view. So I agree with you. I don't think we'd actually disagree about certain specific things. But when, when we say society is misogynistic, then I get perplexed because I feel as though we inhabit a society that goes out of its way to favor women. And in fact, it accepts direct and obvious uh, anti-male sexism. You can say things about men in the mainstream media, for example, that you could never say about women. It accepts the fact like that- Like what, that it, for example? Uh, I'll give you multiple examples, but like one that sticks out to me is how you always, you had these articles, Vox had a couple headlines like this, white male tears. This is what white male anger looks like. What if you wrote stories, black female anger, this is what it looks like, and you were mocking it? I see those stories a lot on the right. I mean, like, I see nothing more from the right than pictures of of women crying and like, this is what you look like kinds of memes. What, what, see, maybe we are participating in a different right world. (laughs) I, I just, I mean, I think the reality is you don't, get confronted by the right so you don't interact with them very much no, so you I, have a I, particularly well, rosy view of the right well i mean i i listen i, I read the the national review every day I the national the review is not the right at this point though like they have been excommunicated they are they are in, you know in exile like okay, what do you mean by the right that by the right, I mean the majority that are likely to like might reelect Donald Trump. Like, oh, no, no. But what media outlets do you mean? Fox News, which is incredibly right wing and is full of this okay. crap. I, I do have to say I don't pay a lot of attention to television news or Fox News at all. Okay, so Infowars, um, Daily Caller, um, you know, I don't like Infowars either. That, I consider that just crazy. <laughs> but but I mean like Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro talks this way all the time. I have not heard or read like a particularly misogynistic statement or tweet from Ben Shapiro. So you'd you'd have to draw my attention to it. I mean, Ben adheres to a particularly orthodox religious group that has particularly regressive views about women. I I, I feel like it wouldn't be that hard for me to find some sort of arguments along those lines. He certainly has been very, very negative towards feminism and very, very negative towards modern conceptions of womanhood that don't fit the traditional roles. That's probably true. And I definitely accept that he's been very critical of feminism. But here's a question. So I was just thinking about this when we were talking. I think you were going to bring up abortion Mm -hmm. law. So Mm -hmm. so one one problem is like I've had this discussion with other people, too, is like, how do we so. If you look at the breakdown in support for um, pro-choice, pro-life in the United States, it's mm-hmm. basically the same among men and women. And so yeah. is it misogynistic to to oppose abortion? 
I mean, I, yes, I, it is, but it's okay, it's, a, it's a harder it's a harder case to make than just okay, more women okay. are against something, therefore it's misogynistic. No, I don't disagree with that, but I guess I'm saying like I I think one can be against abortion without being misogynistic. Now, I'm personally pro-choice, but I sympathize with anti-abortion advocacy and i don't see that it's misogynistic i think you can be against abortion without being the kind of explicit i hate women misogynist but you can be the kind of individual who thinks women shouldn't have complete control and let's let's move away let's let's shift just slightly here right so instead of talking about abortion let's talk about birth control okay because you said you believe that men and women are equal under the law right yes do you have any uh, procedures that you would have to get approval from your wife before you got that procedure? Uh, not to my knowledge. No, but women do. Women have specific procedures with regard to things like getting IUDs put in, where some people want to oh. make it, and in, in the case it is it is illegal for them to do it unless they are married and have the approval of their spouse. What state is this? Uh, I need to look at the specific states, but it's especially with things like getting your tubes tied, getting a vasectomy, uh, um, whatever. Um, yeah, but we were talking about I, IUD. I, I don't know the specific laws about myriad surgeries. I'd be shocked if that were true. Uh, the IUD, I, I don't think that. I'm not sure true. if it's specifically the IUD. It's certain okay. kinds of long-term birth control. Um, I think here we go. Spousal veto over family planning. Um, give the specific states. I'm not seeing the specific I, states I here. I can't imagine a law like that would possibly hold muster. Oh, I mean, there absolutely are laws on the books right now. I believe I'm 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 trying to find the the confirm, confirmation here, but uh, specific, specifically with tubal um, ligation, where you get your tubes tied. Um, okay, I, I just I just find that absolutely. I mean, if it's true, I'm, yeah. I I would consider it a very bad law, People and getting, I would yeah. I mean, I agree with you that it's a bad law, but your claim was we, women uh, and men are equal under the law, and that's false yeah, if this is the case, correct? Here we go. Uh, Jay Levine, a 34-year-old in California, has tried to get her tubes tied three times over the course of 15 years. She still hasn't been successful. So this is California. Okay. Um, What's the law? Because, I mean, I've never heard of that. That's perplexing to me. People who want their tubes tied can be denied the procedure for a multitude of reasons at various stages of their lives because they're too young, childless, only have one child, or are not married, or are married uh, married to someone with a risky job. Okay, but those are – okay, so but let's be clear that those are different (laughs) – there's a difference between those things and the husband vetoed it. I mean literally they can't do it unless they have a husband there and there are cases where if the husband doesn't give approval, the person can't get the procedure done. I mean I – Okay, so I, I I'd have to read into this. I I don't I've never heard anything like that, and I find it incredibly hard to believe. However, if it is true, I would accept that yes, in whatever state that holds, then yes, there are there are disparities in the law between men and women, and I would strongly oppose that. Here's one. Uh, this okay. is in North Carolina. Aaron Thompson who had one child and wanted her husband uh, with her husband when she was 20. She said, they told me I need to see a psychologist to get cleared and I have to write a two page paper defending my need for this surgery. Well, okay. But I I think there are, 
I don't know that exact case, so it's hard. I'm looking at Snopes, which suggests And let me just that- follow up here. Her husband then went to the doctor and got a vasectomy, and it was completed uh-huh. within a week. Oh, okay. So I, I think we... That's This is a, a thing that I'd have to read the literature more carefully. I don't want to make a rash comment about it. But let me agree with you. Again, I, I will agree that if you found cases like this in a number of states... If that were true, I would say that, yes, that's inequality under the law. And I would uh, I would oppose those those laws strongly. Okay. I I look at this. I don't Snopes think that you're a misogynist. I just want to make oh, clear no, this is why people think that this is a misogynistic society that we live right, in right now. I, I think what's unfortunate is that people are motivated to exaggerate oppression. I just think that's a fact. Now, people are motivated. I I think that there's a narrative that people are motivated to exaggerate uh, oppression, which people use to under to to not spend enough time getting this information, right? Well, I don't disagree with that too. I think that we should, to be clear, I think what we should do is carefully confront the empirical literature and go over it, and then if. There's clear evidence that society is misogynistic. We should say that without apology. And if there's not, then we should say that as well. And so we, it seems that's what, like we're agreeing. So what were your four things again? Laws, norms. I had laws, norms, attitudes, and outcomes. Okay. So we agree it seems like that on some levels, attitudes are misogynistic. Um, that on some level, if these laws are as I say they are, and I think there are other laws that are similar in the ways that they treat men and women differently, that that is misogynistic mm-hmm. under the laws. Um, mm-hmm. I think you can argue that there are still misogynistic norms that are very prevalent in this country. Oh, what was the last one? Sorry, I lost it. Uh, outcomes. Outcomes. And yeah, we've already talked about a variety of outcomes in which I think women suffer as a result of being women. Okay, but I feel as though that's a tendentious recap of this. So we would have to go over each at a time, and maybe I'd like to move to immigration at some point, okay. I hope. Yeah, let's talk about immigration some. You're right. We haven't talked about that at all. And Okay, uh, can I go through my list really quickly before sure. doing that? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, so what I would say is, so, so that's your recap. My recap would look more like this. I think outcomes, you could argue that they favor women, but... If anything, they're equal. It'd be hard to argue. Now, again, that doesn't mean there aren't specific outcomes that favor men. It just means in total. Attitudes, I think, actually favor women reasonably strongly, although, again, there are some where it doesn't. Norms, it's more complicated, I think. I, I might even be willing to say slightly favor men. And then laws. Again, I need to get into the literature on that. I looked at Snopes, and Snopes seems to think that that's not true and was suggesting that those stories were overblown. But I'd have to look at that carefully. So I would say mixed bag more than you would, I suppose. But okay, that's fair. And and what we would do, and you agree with this, right, is that the best way to handle this is just to further look at the empirical evidence and have a healthy debate about it, right? Yeah, an empirical and a moral debate about... I mean, sure, yeah. we've already concluded the moral side of this in that you agree that society yep. should try to improve outcomes for everyone, right? Absolutely. And if certain people's outcomes or norms are, are worse, then they we should yes. focus on those things. Uh, okay, but it does depend. I, I mean, we have to. Okay, so maybe we can we can get into this when we get into immigration. But I think the important thing is, yes, but we have to. There are there are trade offs everywhere, right? Sure, so like, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
That's the only thing I teach my ethics students is no matter what you want to do, there are trade-offs. Okay. See, I'm, I'm exactly right. And I think it's really important to start just by saying, look, there are trade-offs and we have to figure this out. And it's usually it's pretty complicated. Yeah. And I totally concede that my position okay. is I'm willing to risk certain harms of social progress sure. for the sake of the benefits rather than take the conservative approach. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So you want to talk about immigration some. So yeah. you seem to be pro-nationalism in a way that is very confusing to me because I don't – that seems like identity politics to me. So I'm yeah. confused. Well, it, it is, but it's not – okay, so again, like, to, let's be clear about identity politics. I'm not opposed in principle to identity politics. So I would have been in the civil rights movement, at least I hope. If you transplanted me there, I would have been. I believe in, in moral luck, so I probably wouldn't have been one of the monsters who was clubbing them or something. Right. You would have been George Wallace. Probably. I really, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what am atoning for in my social justice life? Yeah, fair enough. But like, let's assume you transplanted me as I am now into 1960. I would have been in the civil rights movement and I would have favored um, black identity politics at the time. So I'm not opposed uh, in principle to identity politics. I think they can be useful and necessary, but they can also be divisive. So what I would, my identity, my nationalism, as I see it, is actually opposed to identity politics, because I think within the nation, we should value the nation more than any particular individual or individual identity. That sounded very illiberal. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got very communist for a second there. Go yeah, ahead. Fascistic for a second, so yeah, a little bit. Uh, that's not actually what I. I guess what I mean is, there's a place for individuals and individual identity and identity groups, but I do like the notion that you can have a nation that binds and solders those together in a way that I think is healthy. It binds them to a sort of superordinate identity. I guess that's what I would say, and so. I don't see that as identity politics. I will frankly admit that my immigration policy would end up being probably identity based. Yes. OK, well, let me just first say, I mean, from the evolution of the state perspective, I think that mm -hmm. the purpose of the state as a social contract kind of person is to, to enforce the social contract and that that often can take the form of certain kinds of um, cultural, not uniformity, but like expectations that a culture you know asserts on all of the individuals and that that can sometimes be a good thing though it can run risks obviously it can go awry um so i'm not i'm not opposed to that particular idea um okay. i think you know i get nervous about it reifying differences that don't exist between people yeah yeah i do too i do too okay so so what is your immigration perspective then that uh Trend, treads more towards identity politics. Well, well, I think what happened, if I remember correctly, when we started discussing on Twitter, mm -hmm. it, the discussion was about, and this is, I, I will say, and again, I mean, I'm, I'm used to it. I don't want to sound like I'm whining about this. I'm pretty used to it. But I was a, a little befuddled by the way people interpreted this tweet in which I talked about designing an algorithm that would pick best immigrants. And my argument was, if you did this, and if it happened to pick 85% European, I'm okay with that. I wouldn't have a problem with that. Whereas, apparently you wouldn't, you wouldn't be concerned about the way that algorithm, algorithm sure. had been programmed? 
Yes, but that's a separate question, and that's what people glommed on to. And for the hypothetical, I was saying, let's just assume this really is the best algorithm. <laughs> so so, so what, yeah, you really, sure. what you really mean to say is, let's assume that white people are better immigrants? No, let's be clear that let's assume Europeans are better immigrants to a predominantly European cultured country. Okay. Yeah. I do think that that's likely true. Okay. Based on what? Based on cultural affinity, based on also, and this is maybe a more controversial point. I I, I also, I, I should just say I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about this, but yeah. I'm not even sure it would be problematic for a country to have specific demographic preferences on immigration. I'm not sure why that is ipso facto evil or racist. So that would be my boldest claim. But let's let's ignore that one just for a moment and say, if I'm I'm concerned about the quality of the immigrants for assimilation, et cetera, yeah, I think it's likely that European I know people have argued against this. And so if it's true that I'm wrong, then fine. But I think it's likely the case that European immigrants would likely assimilate better and be better immigrants from our point of view. So this is the first point here, I think, right? You're you're talking about best immigrants and then you talked about assimilating best. But assimilating yes. best is not the only metric for good immigrants, sure. and it's a comp- it's a problematic metric because what you mean by assimilation is not clear. Yeah, that's that's fair, and, and that would be that's one of those things that's like very difficult to to define. But we could operationalize it in various ways. Well, what right? do you have in mind when you think of assimilate of good assimilation? Um, so I have in mind the way that say Irish people in the United States are viewed as people in the United States rather than Irish people. And they don't pursue what they view as their own shallow interest anymore. You don't think there are are communities of Irish individuals who identify very strongly as Irish and promote Irish interests? Sure. But yeah, sure. There are, but we don't have, uh, there aren't national disputes about how many Irish people we have in Congress so far as I know. But that could be a result of other factors having to do with the way that society views certain immigrant groups versus other immigrant groups, totally separate from how integrated those groups have become. Yeah. Right? Let's suppose, let's suppose that I accept that. I think society's perceptions matter here, too. And I think this is what we were disagreeing about, because what I was saying is, if demographic diversity seems to cause contentiousness and fractiousness, then we should be careful about it. And I think that's what you were object, because what your claim is, is we should attempt to change their opinions and the way they deal with demographic diversity. Right. I mean, yeah, it seems to me that like, just like people, you know, just like um, sexual diversity, Right. Makes Mm -hmm. a lot of people very anxious. It doesn't mean that we should then not allow gay people to immigrate. Right. 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 Okay. that's the extra. I I think that's not like the steel man version of my. Well, but I'm I'm just sort of uh, right. I'm giving an an uncontroversial example. Right. One that we would both agree on. But like, what about Chinatown, for example? I lived near New York City and like Mm -hmm. I go to Chinatown to get great Chinese food. Should we be telling Chinatown to break it up and move along? Like, yeah. 
you know, so that's an, it's an interesting example. And you can think of lots of examples that are similar to that. I think one reason that Chinatowns in, in San Francisco, New York, et cetera, don't cause consternation is because Northeast Asians right now are a very small subset of the population. And there, there aren't, there isn't a lot of clamoring for more Northeastern Asian representation in government and in society more broadly. There just doesn't seem to be an activated sense of competition among the dominant European group and or Black and Hispanic groups and Northeast Asians. So I think it, it, it ends up it's more innocuous. The smaller the number, so that may of the be the result of the model Asian kind of problem. That like they're they're considered the oh. model race, right? In in the sense of like they're a different race, but they're good in various ways, and so they don't. I mean, this is part of my concern: is we don't seem to ask for as much assimilation from these communities as we seem to demand of. Uh, Middle Eastern individuals who you know immigrate to our society, or people from South America who immigrate to our society. Okay, so the Middle Eastern one is interesting. I'll take that separately. The I think the difference between the Hispanic though and the Northeast Asian makes a lot of sense because there aren't as many Northeast Asians, so population proportion matters. People get more uncomfortable the larger the proportion. So. For example, if we became 60, if, if we transformed overnight, 60% Northeast Asian all of a sudden, I think you would see a lot of concern and care and people would be alarmed by that. I mean, if you saw suddenly like a radical shift, I think there is some evidence that like you need to like do this in a staggered kind of way. But that, that's getting into sort of a, a practical concern rather than like what seems to be your ethical claim that there's nothing ethically wrong about just preferring more white people. Well, OK, that's a I'm not sure that I would put it that nakedly, I guess. Like it's I said that it, that's a complicated view. So I don't think there's here's what I think ethically. I don't think it's ethically bad for a particular group of people to care about the fact that their numbers are dwindling in a nation. I think that that it, it makes a lot of sense to me. If Japan started, uh, if J Japanese people in Japan became 60% of the population over a period of 50 years, I would totally expect and understand demographic concerns from those Japanese people. No, yeah, I would not... just think that we should meet those demographic concerns. Like, and this comes back to how it's being done, right? If you're okay. if you're oppressing the Japanese by enforcing people on them, that's a different conversation than if just sure. natural demographic trends, which is largely what's happened in America. But some people would view it as forced. A lot of, I mean, I think it is. I think it would be accurate to say that a lot of what happened with immigration policy happened without the input of most humans because both both most citizens in the United States because both parties essentially agreed to keep it off of the debate table until say 2005 2006 or something well i mean okay. technically george w bush tried and was was rebuffed by his own party because he was sure. trying to do something somewhat moderate yeah. Well, we can we can, but look at the look at the immigration numbers through Reagan, through Bush, and through Clinton, and then through Bush. I mean, the numbers slowed down significantly during um, 
they really slow down during, as I recall, I'd have to look at these figures exactly, but there is a lot of immigration and a lot of illegal immigration that was essentially tacitly accepted by people in our society and not by the population. I think that's exactly why you opened a window for a provocateur like Trump is because there were a lot of people who were pissed off and nobody was really addressing the restrictionist position very well. Nobody was, there wasn't a, a, an option for the restrictionist to go to. I mean, my understanding of the history of the Southern border is it, mm-hmm. it was more of an open border up until mm-hmm. the conservatives decided to try to lock it down and talk a lot more about illegal immigration, specifically as a way to animate white voters that like this was a very very deliberate tactic to create a boogeyman that would be used to to rally votes so i mean there's a lot of evidence of that process that seems like a pretty like that's a to me that seems like a tendentious account i think both political parties basically removed immigration from the political sphere of debate for so, very mean, different you, reasons though i mean look at look okay, at obama right? and the dreamers right obama didn't move on fail to move on immigration because he didn't I, want to it was because uh, there was no one who would talk to him on the right about this conversation totally agree with that. That, that that's that's but that's past when i would set the the sort of elite party consensus i think it broke down by the time you get to obama clinton was a triangulating prick who like moved to the middle on as many things as he could to try to win over conservative support and ended up you know causing a lot of harm to the social welfare state as a result so like the part the, the the locus of the problem here appears to be the kind of racial identity stuff that you seem to be saying is kind of understandable well, okay, but, but I guess it's important to uh, what's important to me is that there, if we had had democratic, I, I think, look, like re- big business liked the illegal immigration, and therefore I think Republicans were probably more okay with that than they otherwise would have been. And in fact, they probably did a pretty good job of trying to keep it off of the table. Whereas some of their base and people like Ann Coulter were very irritated about it and were trying to get somebody to talk about it. So I don't I don't read it as like an overt Republican strategy to create an an other and then demonize it. I don't think that I I think there's some evidence of that. Uh, I think there are specific people who are actively trying to do that. You can look at specific commercials where uh, immigrants are are portrayed as dangerous. I mean, like Donald Trump started off his campaign by saying that immigrants are rapists. Like this is not up for debate, in my opinion. No, 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 but that's okay. But that's not my point. I agree. I agree with you now. I, I'm I'm trying to look at the history from say 1980 to say 2004 or something. I agree with you that now there are a number of candidates who use it for inflammatory purposes and to stoke up fear in their base to get people out to vote. I agree with that, and I don't like that, and that's why I think you can see this causes problems when you don't address it earlier. So. But what do you mean by addressing? Because I do think that, like, there's a lot of work being done trying to explain 
you know, immigrants don't actually cause the harms that people think they do. It just doesn't uh, break through to the individuals who are being told repeatedly that, in, you know, that immigrants are incredibly dangerous, that like it's just easier to whip up fear than it is to yeah. educate people on the realities of something as complicated as immigration. No, I, I think that that's probably true. And, and so it's a complicated issue, of course. Um, the, but there is a lot of evidence from all of, I mean, all of world history gives us evidence that you there generally when ethnic groups live together it can be contentious and fractious and that we have to be careful about it and i don't like racial or ethnic or whatever you want to call it. i don't particularly care about the nomenclature i don't like that kind of tension i think it's bad for both groups it's bad it, it's dangerous to hispanic immigrants for it to be at this level where you can get people demagoguing it, that very much troubles me, right? So I don't like it for either group. And I think we have to start from a position of accepting, and this is where we get into the human nature. I think we have to accept human nature and deal with it. We can try to change it, of course, and we have. We have People are much more cosmopolitan now than they were 100 years ago. But we have to accept that a lot of people are never going to be cosmopolitan in the way that some other people are. And I think we need to try to, I don't want to say cater to them, but we need to adjust our situation to balance both interests. But when the interests are really genuinely ethically opposed, right, do you side with the individuals who are factually correct and, and less frightened? Or do, well, you, do you, I mean, like... Factually correct in the sense of I think there's pretty overwhelming evidence that immigration doesn't cause a lot of the harms that people tend to blame on immigrants. Um, I, I agree with that. I think that it probably doesn't cause certain kinds of harms that people attribute to it. I think it causes it. It, it depends on what immigrants you're getting to, of course. Right. Uh -huh. But it is the case that it probably reduces wages or it's it's arguable george borjas has would argue that it does other people would debate it but it's at least arguable that it potentially reduces wages for low skilled workers and that follows a pretty clear supply and demand economic model and it also causes it it it, it can cause a breakdown in cultural cohesion. Because if you've ever been in a neighborhood that changes rapidly and the culture changes, it's, it's, it's distressing to people. And I think that's understandable. I understand why people are distressed when their culture changes. I understand why people are distressed. Just like, I mean, to me, your argument, the argument you're making is functionally identical to the argument against desegregation in the South. And that's why I think, you know, that 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 it's ultimately a problematic argument is that it follows this same kind of form um but like there's there's evidence to the contrary right for for anyone who wants to argue that like uh immigration reduces wages you can make just as good an argument that illegal immigrants actually reduce wages more because by having this group of people in the country who are not under legal protections that it is easier for businesses to take advantage mm -hmm. of them mm -hmm. than it would be for them to take advantage of normal citizens so mm -hmm. like unless you're really going to get rid of every single illegal immigrant which we're not going to do in this country having sure. strict illegal immigration laws is worse for rank and file employees so like like, my point overall here, and I guess we're running a little short on time, so I wanted to I mean, maybe come around to some wrapping up, concluding 
um, thoughts here some is that like you and I have agreed on a lot of stuff over the course of this conversation it seems like um, mm -hmm. and it I get I get concerned about the difference in framing and who it is catering to and I feel like I, I if I wanted to right bring any bring about any change and I think part of the genuine reason of discussion is to bring about change with the person you're engaging with and not just you know with people who might be listening or something is that like I would love it so much more if you said I am I'm strongly for social progress I recognize that it goes awry sometimes but like the right is a substantial problem in our country at this particular moment and even though the left is extreme sometimes they are not the major concern that we are facing as a society that seems like it's coherent with everything that you believe and I just I'm curious why why not pick that framing over the like the reactionary centrist kind of framing other than that like that that framing my lip the one that i live is less popular in the sense that it doesn't stand out in a crowd quite as much because there are well, lots of people I, who hold that view it would be more convenient for my career to hold that view i honestly don't hold it but i want to i i do want to work backward just for mm -hmm. a second because you made a string of claims that i think it's important to uh, attempt to address them so you said the argument is not functionally different for the argument against desegregation. I think this is why I'm a Burkean, because I don't think like the structure of arguments often are the same, but might lead to bad or terrible oh, circumstances. The, the substance is functionally the same here, too. I'm sorry. You're right. I should have said not just okay. form, but the substance is okay. the same, right? Blacks okay. and whites can't coexist. Well, no, but the substance is different because I, I don't... Blacks and white, different racial groups in the same country, I don't think you can justify segregation. But I don't think we have to have open borders. So I think we get to discriminate about who we let into the country to become a citizen. I think those are substantively different arguments. I think we have an ethical obligation to promote freedom of mobility as much as is functionally possible. So I, in that I sense, I would that. say... We have an ethical prima facie obligation towards open borders, and you'd have to present evidence that, like, okay. it's sufficiently defeated. Um, okay, so but, you, you would say, like, the default is open borders, and then we argue, like, we sort of have to argue against it, I suppose? If we're going to live in a nationalist world. I mean, my, part of my okay. broader question is, why why not just have a global identity instead of a nationalist identity? I, it's a, that's a very good question, and what I would say is, I if— if I thought that were possible, I would promote it. I just don't think that it's possible. I think everything about human history and human nature suggests to me that humans form splintered identity groups and battle against other identity groups for limited resources, especially for limited prestige, which they want. But the and history so, of humans has also been the move away from smaller groups towards larger yeah, groups of cohesion. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. So the question is, how do where do we stop what's the best place to stop i mean is there a place do we eventually get to Seems this like place? universalism is the place to stop once once you realize that everyone is a member of your tribe that's the goal right yeah i don't think that's going to happen so let me give you a different example <laughs> i mean it may not but it is a goal that we could work towards and improve well, the world maybe, in the process maybe but it's an asymptote so but it's at least an, a goal okay. mm. i mean the problem with that so like this is where trying to change human, where 
trying to change human nature too much can be pernicious. So I'll give you give the example of communism. So, uh, you know, like abstractly, it seems like a very morally persuasive worldview and a way to run a society. I mean, I'm not as enamored with it on paper as some people are, but I get the moral force of it. The problem is it conflicts so strongly with human nature that the only way to attempt to implement it is through tyranny, it appears, and that it was very ruinous to human well-being. And therefore, and that's actually a mixed bag too, right? You could argue that the people who survived communism were much better off than the people who were at the beginning of the communist regimes. Yes, I think you could make a that would be a bold argument. I'm not a tanky though. I'll just put that on the record. I'm not. I'm I'm not pro either of the major communist regimes. I'm just saying that, like, if you measure actual increase of quality of life, sure, you you could make that argument, and I think it clearly that. I think there there's a lot of evidence that Marshall's against that. But I think you could at least make that for a certain segment of the population. It's like, after all, Stalinist Russia did industrialize remarkably quickly, and it was very successful in a certain sense. And communist China is kicking our ass right now. <laughs> although, China, you know, communist China is not really communist anymore. I mean, I mean it's big. communist enough that they have the, I mean, it's, it's got the authoritarian unified yes. power side that allows yeah, them to true. be more responsive to situations than our current yeah. government. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, that's, that, that's fair. But I, I guess the point is, there is a, there, there comes a point where the moral ideal is actually immoral because it conflicts so much with human nature and the amount of suffering that it would sow in the world is intolerable and we should reject it. And I can think of a different example. So I'll use this one. So so there there are people who make the argument that preferring your family to strangers is a moral failure of humans. It's, it's a moral limitation. Right. And I just think that that's a bizarre argument because even if you want to make this argument that it's a moral failure, you're not going to get rid of it. And if you attempt to get rid of it, the result will be disastrous. Yeah, we and call so this that's... the demandingness objection. What, what is it called? The, the demandingness objection. Well, if you make yeah, ethics yeah. too demanding, you're just going to not get yeah. any followers. Yeah, exactly. And as the utilitarians, of course, are concerned with this, right? Because if you're demanding the, the amount of utility you suck demanding this is more than the utility you would gain from whatever you accomplish, right? So you and I would both agree, I, I presume, that that can be a problem. The question right. just is when and where is it a problem, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Okay. And, and I think, yeah, I think that part of the difference is uh, I take a more malleable approach to human nature. I think that it, right. it, the evidence is that we've changed very rapidly as a species and could continue to do mm-hmm. so. Yeah. And that's interesting because I do think underlying this, and this is why I said in my piece that I wrote on conservatism, and I'm sure certainly not the only person to say this, but the, the, the way to understand conservatism is to understand the concept of original sin, right? <laughs> like when you understand, a, that, that, if I said that, I would feel like I was being uncharitable. So I'm curious how you get to say that. <laughs> okay, so that's interesting because the way I view it is the conservative, the intellectual conservative, at least as I see it, starts from the perspective of original sin. That is to say. Humans are limited, fallible, flawed creatures that can imagine paradise, but are condemned to live in purgatory. They can't make it to paradise because of their own ineradicable limitations. Now, we might be able to eradicate them in the future and 
possibly you and I can talk about that another time because that's an interesting conversation. But given the biological realities we have now, I don't think we can. And so I, I'm guessing that what distinguishes most of our views actually is just you think that you have a much less original sin view of humans than I do. Yeah, and I think uh, to add to that, I mean, I generally agree with you. Um, but to also add to it, I think it's it goes back to our central debate question, which is how much should society lean into versus lean out of human nature, mm-hmm. right? I agree with you that human beings are incredibly tribal, and I don't have any assumptions that it's going to go away soon. The question mm-hmm. is, should we promote you know, tribal nationalism, or should we, you know, try to promote a universal humanist perspective and downplay yeah. tribal nationalism? Yes. Yeah, I, that, that's, yeah. I, I think that that's a great question, and it's a great problem to wrestle with. And to be clear, and another reason I call myself a centrist is because I don't actually have strong views on these things. If If you forwarded a lot of evidence that suggested promoting universal humanism, would bring about more well-being in the world, then I would become a universal humanist. I really would. I'm trying to the best of my limited abilities to gauge what I think is accurate about the world. And I would only put these in percentages. So I'd say Mm -hmm. like this position I hold with like 73% force or something, you know, like all of them could, all of these opinions could change, right? I totally accept that. And it's, it's, the world's a really complicated place, which is, This is why it's so crucial for people to have these discussions. And one thing, I think the thing that we, I think the thing you first said to me on Twitter was, who doesn't let you have these conversations? And let me say, I'm not just trying to flatter your ego. Although I can sense that you strongly disagree with me on a lot of things, this has been a very fair and charitable conversation. And that's not usual. (laughs) I don't think. Yeah, I want to jump in on this point a little bit, actually. Um, and then I want to come back to something about your framing with centrism and, and strength okay. of ideas, if I can remember to. But yeah, this, is, this is something that I'm putting, I put in the intro as well, but I'll say it here. Okay. I don't think that the majority of human beings have a moral obligation to debate the people they strongly disagree with. And okay, I, that's- well, no, and I just want to say a lot of folks, because I am a pathological debater, because I mm-hmm. do this for my own pleasure um, – mm-hmm folks will then at the end of those conversations be like, oh, I love that you did this and I wish that other people on the left would do this. I don't like being, and I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm just saying for future reference for people who are listening to this, I don't like being used that way as like a cudgel against people who for very good reasons do not want to debate the people on these topics. I think there are lots of legitimate reasons to not want to engage in these kinds of debates. And so that's just my way of saying like, I don't think there's a moral imperative that what I'm doing here is what everyone has to do. I do agree with you that there is some value to having this disagreement. I think that you know whether or not either of us changes our perspectives or anyone listening changes their perspectives, I do think there is value in hashing these issues out with someone who genuinely disagrees with you rather than even a really good interlocutor who mostly agrees with you. Right. So I am using you as a cudgel against them and I won't apologize for it because well, then I'm telling you, stop it. Don't do it. I think it's a mistake. And I think you should you should back away quickly from that idea. Well, I strongly disagree with your claim. of I'm not I'm not suggesting people have a moral responsibility to debate everybody all the time. I certainly don't think that. And I also think there's a lower amount of responsibility for non-intellectuals. However, 
I think it's it's actually like immoral to claim that academic intellectuals should be able to degrade and derogate some position and then not debate it because that's what I see a lot of. And that's what bothers me. So like, if you're going to denigrate my views and then you're going to refuse to interact with them, I think that that's immoral. And I would say that that's an immoral thing to do. And that if you're not going to interact with the views, then just stay quiet. Don't participate. I mean, if this is your perspective, and I totally believe it is, I think that you should, I mean, I think that you need, you personally, I would recommend work harder on not strawmanning people who disagree with you. Because looking just at your descriptions in some of your articles of the left, like looking at the way that, like not just on Twitter, but like in your published Quillet articles, you really often don't give your opponents any sort of credible or charitable um, read and that it leads to it feeling like you're not you're not seriously engaging and that makes people I think less want to engage I think that what you're doing is you're interpreting the group that I'm criticizing more broadly than I am so if I'm criticizing the great awakening I'm focusing on a specific set of people but let me I'm give not- an example here right You say in one of your papers, um, popular hashtags such as believe women imply Mm -hmm. that women are incapable of lying or misremembering. Do you really believe that that's accurate? That's probably not the fairest characterization. No, I do believe that there was an overreact. Some people do claim that we should believe women more strongly than I think the evidence warrants. But yeah, I I agree with you. That's probably not the most chair. And to be fair, that article in total is probably not the most charitable one. So I would be happy to say that in a perfect world, I probably would not have penned that article. (laughs) So would you back away at this point from like your talk of the West? Because that's another thing that you get into a fair bit that I have a real issue with is like, you talk well, about progressives hating the West and like, I don't know what you mean by Western did culture. I, did I say hating the West? Did I say that? I'm uh, sorry. I think you said uh, have a strong disdain for Western culture that? and attempt to demonize um, many of its heroic figures like Washington and Jefferson and okay. Churchill. Yeah, so I I think uh, okay, so to be cha- I'll be charitable to me and then harsh on me. To be charitable to me, I would say there are lots of claims like that that are defensible, and I do think there is a bit of an animosity to Western culture that I see that has become rather sort of commonplace in academia. However, I will say again. That article is not the way to invite people into a conversation. And I do regret the forcefulness of some of my eloquent denunciations. And I agree with you. I think that you will find this, though. This is what I would say. So I would disavow. Well, let me say I like some of the article, but some of it goes way too far. And I agree with that. I mean, like even just the way too far stuff. I don't I don't know. I don't agree with you that like. I, I agree with you. There's an animosity towards a particular picture of quote unquote Western culture. And I think we could even debate what we mean by Western culture here. Sure. But like, I'll, I'll, for the sake of argument, uh, assume that I know what you mean for the moment. Like, mm-hmm. 
what progressives have an issue with is a rosy picture of Western culture that ignores the harms and that, like, I, I personally love, quote-unquote, Western culture when I think about the positive aspects of it, and I strongly sure. dislike the negative aspects, and I'm not sure why... This is something that came up with the Ilhan Omar-Trump situation, where, like, yeah. when someone like Omar criticizes um, America... Right. Mm -hmm. People treat it differently than if I criticize America. And that seems like a major problem. And it seems to me that when progressives criticize the West, people mm -hmm. act differently than when a centrist or a right wing person criticizes, quote unquote, the West. OK, so I, I think I, I, I mean, there, it, I think some of what you said is definitely true. I think it's perfectly fair to criticize certain practices in the West. Slavery is a good example that deserves universal condemnation, and I think it receives it. However, mm -hmm. I do think there's a difference between a, a sort of judicious um, accounting of the sins and glories of the West and what you might find in a, in a regular progressive uh, circle such as say Howard Zinn's American or the People's History of the United States. Now that that strikes me, and and look, I'm, I'm to be clear, I'm coming from the radical wing of leftists when I was in my early twenties. You know, I flossed my teeth on Chomsky and Zinn, and I think if you read a People's History, it basically reads like a caricature, like a if a conservative were to caricature a progressive and write a book from that caricatured perspective, you would write a people's history. That's just this like litany of the supposed crimes of everybody in the history of the United States. And basically the whole narrative is the United States is relentlessly evil and the people, which is only vaguely defined, but the, the people, the, the, the oppressed are always good. And I, yeah, I think that that's a bizarre picture of the world. I mean, I, I think that that's a, that's a corrective perspective of the world right he's deliberately writing in response to mm -hmm. a history of glorification of the west okay but if i wrote a corrective to zinn and mm -hmm. I, I, actually there is one there's a patriot's history mm -hmm. i find that equally ridiculous i don't like either i would rather have just a judicious assessment of reality i don't need correctives on either side but let's I think put you that would argue point. that you can't get to the judicious without correct okay right okay maybe that's fair so let's just put that aside for a second though and i will i will say this like i i'm sure that i have said and i'm sure that i've written articles and i'm sure that i have said things that are incendiary and that don't further uh discussion among people in different tribes i'm definitely sure and i'm sure i will do it again i will say this however I don't think you can find a personal interaction of mine on Twitter in which I'm remarkably unfair to the person with whom I'm communicating. And I try always to be fair and open to discourse and dialogue. And I have invited anybody onto my podcast. And I, I feel as though I've been perfectly fair with you and you've been perfectly fair with me. And so, yes, I, I will repeat again. I do think it's immoral if you are going to call me a racist or call Noah Carl a racist, or call us other names, then yes, you should have a discussion about that. That is a moral obligation. You've been inserted yourself into the conversation by making inflammatory claims, and now you should have to have a conversation about that. I don't think that's asking 
for a lot for other people. I agree with you. There are lots of people who shouldn't have these debates. They're they're not well read enough to, or they're, they're just not interested. Fine. Then stay out of the debate in the first place, and then there's no obligation there, right? I don't. I don't one hundred percent agree. I partly okay. agree. I okay. think that like. If I'm going to engage with you, and I do agree that you seem on in your Twitter interactions to be more generous than I've experienced in some of your other, um, I guess I, I, I spent the past week listening back through your podcast, and there were just I, I just kept noting the number of cases where Corey was like, "Well, that's not a really a generous read of yeah. the left, is it?" So that's like, sort of our shtick, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, but like you know, I I I gather that you have a genuine built up animosity of your own that that pushes you in this direction sometimes and i'm glad to hear that you're you're aware of it and that you're you're working on that cuz we all have these things that we have yeah, to work on and i guess what i'd say is um I think it's okay for the rank and file of the world, right, to mm-hmm. form beliefs about this particular thing is racist or not without necessarily obligating them to defend every single time that they form a belief. I think there's well, this no, kind I, of view I, amongst I, rationalists that, like, you have to be willing to debate everything, right? Oh, sure. I agree with that. I, I agree with you. There's a difference between but, – but then – when you put your opinion into the public sphere, I think the obligation becomes different, right? So, like, let's take a different example. You, presumably, you would say that if you're going to go into the public sphere and say that, say, uh, you think that Hispanic people are less intelligent than Europeans, you should be prepared to debate that, right? I think so. I think it'd be reasonable to uh, be prepared to engage with that. <laughs> right. So do I. I definitely think you better be prepared to. and. Similarly, I think if you're going to come into public sphere and call Noah Carl a racist or me a racist or or me a fascist, you had better be prepared to have a discussion about that. Not one in which I'm berating you because that's not what I would do. I would just want to have a discussion and say, why do you think that's fascistic? What are you talking about? Let's have a discussion about it. Right. That's what I would say. I, I agree with you, though, for the most part. Many people will form beliefs that I don't think they're obligated to debate. I agree with that. But when you insert yourself into the public domain, especially the more the sort of more incendiary the claim you're making, the more the obligation to debate it, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's not untrue. I agree. I do mostly agree with that. And that's I mean, that's obviously I'm here having this debate with you. So I clearly agree (laughs) on some level. And, and let me say, I will say this, if I, I will work, I am going to work hard. I really am. I'm going to work hard to be, and I've thought about this a lot, and even the past couple of weeks, just like trying to be as charitable and building sort of bridges. And I, for example, not using the term blank slatist, uh-huh. um, a lot of these things that I want to do to be fair, to be as fair as possible. I really do. And I, I think, yeah, you can point to some of the things I've said in articles that I maybe had fun saying because I was angry and they didn't accomplish anything. And I think that's fair to criticize. Totally. Uh, totally. And I mean, you know, I've I, I, I troll people on Twitter. I'm not going to deny that, like, <laughs> you know, there, there is a point in Twitter where I go from we're, we're having a conversation to I'm playing with my food now. Um, <laughs> so, like, I understand that. Uh, let me let me just throw this out here. And like. Okay. I don't want you to feel like I'm I'm being overly critical of you. You can have me on your show and 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 criticize all of my shtick, and there's plenty to criticize. But I think my for sure something that you might find actually genuinely helpful, right? If you really are into this like 
de-escalation between these different tribes and like building communication would be, I think, being more open to people's, you know, you're very concerned, you're very understanding of people's fear of immigrants, it sounds like, yeah. right? Sure. Be more understanding of the fear of scientific racism, that like, there is a lot of good reason, I think, for people to mm -hmm. be afraid of what people with bad intentions will do with your work. I'm not saying that means mm -hmm. you shouldn't be allowed to study it. I'm saying it it should be treated like, I think you guys made the comparison on one of your podcasts, like the smallpox kind of virus, right? Like, these are ideas that have incredible potential for harm. They should mm -hmm. be studied in careful conditions. They should be discussed in very careful conditions. And framing can make a huge impact on what what place those beliefs have in the world, which is why, again, I was saying earlier, I think if you said I'm strongly progressive and like I want to see equality in society, I, I, I have some concerns about limitations based on some research. And let's talk about that research a little bit. That comes off very differently than, you know, I'm a centrist, I don't agree with the right on a lot, but I think the left has gone crazy about their fears. It doesn't get, that doesn't give me the impression that you're going to handle this topic with the level of um, severity that it deserves, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, I, I think that's fair. There's some in what you said that I did, I think I disagree with. I do, I do, of course, I think it's fair. And I, I want you to know, and listeners, you know. I have thought about that issue about um, the potential harm, for example, a lot for a long time, right? I mean, so I'm thinking I converted, if you will, to believing in significant and important human population differences when I was about 25. So for 14, 15 years, I've been wrestling with that topic, and I didn't write about it at all until I was in my mid-30s. So... Um, I, I, I have thought about it carefully and I do agree and I continue to interrogate myself about it. So I, I agree with that advice. I think it's important to do that. And that that's something that is not unreasonable to ask for. I think where I get concerned about it is it sounds as though what you're, you're suggesting is like, if you frame this as a progressive, mm -hmm. then that's, that's like somehow gives you like points and the fact is, I'm not a progressive. I agree with you. I'm a I'm a a Whiggish conservative. I believe in progress. In fact, I believe in progress and and how awesome progress is so much that I want to be careful about it and to attempt to preserve it and to laud our ancestors who led to this progress. So I guess I'm more of like a Burkean, and I don't want to frame things as though I'm a progressive because I'm not. I guess, I'm, I'm, yeah, it confuses me a little bit because it seems like in some of the content, I would identify you as a progressive, I think. It seems, but, but like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll accept your identification, uh, okay. your self-identification in this context. I'll refer to you as you want to be referred. Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, I really don't. I, I just think that's the accurate description. Maybe, maybe it's not the best description. I mean, I, I think I'm a weird I mean, like, I talk to Corey about this all the time, and I'm like, what am I politically? And she's like, I have no idea. You're weird. So I, I accept that I'm pretty weird. I don't, I, I sympathize with progressives on some things. I sympathize with, you know, et cetera. So mm -hmm. that's fair. I just don't, I get concerned because I know people who are, are perfectly decent conservatives who study these things, and I don't want them to have to frame it as a progressive. They should be able to say, 
here's the science. This is what we're talking about. This is the science. This is what I think is true without qualifying it with five things to appeal to to people who are like sensitive about the politics of it. I think yeah. that's where I, I start to get worried. I, guess. I mean, this gets into psychom kind of questions. I think that like, you know, you ha- as a scientist, you should be studying the truth. But you should right. also be aware of the cultural context in which that truth is being studied in your framing yeah. of that truth to the non-scientific sure. world. Oh, um, for sure. For, I, I definitely agree with that. I, that I don't that's what dis- I'm talking about here. Okay. All right. Okay. So, um, all right. But we've there's I'm sure there's plenty more we could go through, but I feel like I've, I've taken up a ton of your time already. And uh, oh, this will be two I, really I, good I, episodes, I think. Okay. I truly appreciate it. And um and I, I will try not to use you as a cudgel, I promise, but I do, I still will thank you for having this conversation and, and I enjoyed it. And um, yeah, yeah about it. and okay. do you want to let folks know where they can find you again? <laughs> you know, where, where, what, what things, you want, hawk the things for you? I actually don't know where they can, they can find me on Twitter, but I actually don't know what my handle is. But if you look up Bo Weingard, maybe assistant professor at Marietta or something you can run into me I will suggest I will still make some tweets that may offend progressives but if you interact with me I promise it was all in good fun fair enough and I do think people should check out your um cyphalopod podcast it was was an interesting experience um okay (laughs) I mean in the sense in the sense that I think I disagree with you but I'm I'm not I'm gonna have a conversation with Corey hopefully I think she's gonna come on the show as well she said she was going to yeah yeah so so I think that'll be interesting because I, I have a harder time getting a sense of exactly what her perspective is um, yes. compared where I feel like I, I got a pretty clear sense of where you were coming from. But I do think <laughs> that you all have a really good back and forth and that like, it's yeah, not, I, it's not an echo chamber podcast is what it feels like to me. Right? No, it's not. And, and I will say, I, I mean, I, I will say, I say this to her myself, which is that she, her, her real views are a little better hidden than mine are, I suppose in some sense, but yeah, she, she's truly more progressive than I am and challenges me. And I enjoy that. Yeah. So, well, Bo, thank you very much for coming on. Very much appreciate it. Anytime. I appreciate it. Thank you to our listeners and patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our new patrons, Grand Priapism, Hunter Ash, John Bartlett, and General Contact Unit Problem Child. Uh, Thank you to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence Makes My Pussy Throb. The person who controls the spice controls the void. Volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you especially to our top tier patron, as always, the wonderful Dave Maslich. Thank you so, so much. You all make this entirely possible. Uh, If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Follow us at Twitter at ETVPod and support us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 